I think where people get tripped up with emotions is where when candid conversations have to happen, that is the moment of truth where you answer the question, do you have control of your emotions or not? If my boss comes to me on a weekly basis with critical but accurate feedback about something in the workplace, my job is not to feel that initial onset of ego and the downstream emotions of that ego being wounded. My job is to take those and turn them into something productive that makes us both happy. It's to go put an action plan in place to turn the situation around. It's to sit there with humility and recognize the situation for what it is and then create a solution to it. And that is the fundamental difference between someone who you would call a rookie and someone who you would call a pro is the ability to translate what is historically difficult emotions into something actionable. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, today's episode is one of the most candid that we've had to date. If you're somebody that's in our podcast community or our greater art of coaching community overall, and you're wondering, hey, you know, when are you going to do an episode on how to get through tough times dealing with remote leadership and, and working with remote teams, becoming a better communicator, not just verbally, but in a written standpoint, and all these other areas that deal with just transformational leadership, vulnerability, and the like, this is going to be one of your favorite episodes, I promise. And again, I can't tell you enough, all of these are unscripted. Adam does a tremendous job being put on the hot spot at the end. So I know this is a longer episode, but please, please, please stay tuned. There are things that you have not heard before in any podcast that are this vulnerable and that tie together with this great of a message. So promise you, stay with it. This has been one of my favorites and I love all of our guests, but I this is going to be one that you're not going to want to miss. So let's do a little introduction here quick. Guys, Adam is an author, sales leader, and entrepreneur, and he really writes about how to create the best version of ourselves, but not in some cheesy, wishy-washy, productivity mantra kind of way. He writes in a very real, transparent way, which is what we're about at Art of Coaching too. You know, we don't really get into the, hey, every day's got to be perfect and you've got to have the best morning routine. And if you can just remember these three principles, everything's good. Life is chaotic. I mean, if you followed us for some time, we even put out a chaos checklist at artofcoaching.com forward slash chaos that deals with, you know, some of you that don't have the perfect morning or day and you need to get your back, your day back on track. We have resources because that's how we relate. We're not always the hero of our own story. Sometimes we're the anti-hero. Sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes you got to take a lateral path. And so that's why Adam's work is so tremendous. Today, he leads a sales organization for a company called Automatic. 
And why that should matter to you is it's one of the largest remote workforces in the world. And guys, during a time when so much is going virtual, every leader needs to learn more about how to navigate this space in a tactical and tactful way. And he gives a lot of insight on how to do that as well and enhancing you know, how you come across as a professional and all these pieces. He publishes a daily personal development newsletter at vitruvianproject.co, and that'll be in the show notes. And his work has been featured on Men's Journal, Inc.com, The Huffington Post, Men's Fitness, Lifehack, and Entrepreneur on Fire, to name a few. He is the type of individual that embodies so much of what we talk about at Art of Coaching from a communication standpoint and beyond. And there's a lot of surprises that I'm not telling you about him that you'll discover when you get into the episode. So dive in. If you love it, please share. Please leave a review. We're not even doing any more pre-roll on this. Let's get right to the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Art of Coaching Podcast. I'm Brett Bartholomew, and I'm joined today by Adam Griffin. Adam, how are you? I am doing wonderful. I appreciate uh, having me on and excited to be here. Adam, one thing that I appreciate is that your audio quality is phenomenal. And that is something that cannot, like, that cannot be stated enough of the importance of making a good podcast is just somebody being thoughtful about their audio quality, but you being the empathetic, just leadership-based guy I know that's always concerned about the other person and other people's experience, I want you to know that that's a hell of a way to start off the episode, man, having good audio quality. <laughs> I appreciate it. These are uh, Sennheiser headphones, and I happen to work for an organization that is um, extremely thoughtful about the way we present ourselves, on, both on video and on audio, because we're a fully distributed organization, 1,300 people. So we, we take the presentation of audio and video pretty seriously. So you, you'd probably be appreciative of my uh, my video gadgets I have going as well. Well, that's so we're already, this is an unscripted show, as you and many of our listeners know, and we're already going to take our first detour I want you to actually go into that a little bit because I think, you know, with the pandemic and everything like that and everything getting more and more virtual over time and also selfishly, it's something that I tell our staff too is, you know, hey, don't please do not get on an interview or a Zoom call or what have you unless, you know, if it's a company Zoom call, there's a little bit leeway because we we have one member of our company who, you know, has a little girl and she's, you know, now pregnant again. And then we have another one who's a new dad. And so I get that sometimes, you know, for, if it's a company kind of daily stand up thing, we give some leeway. Um, but I try to tell them the same thing. Please be thoughtful for the other people's sake on audio and video. Can you can you walk us through some of this stuff that you're using? So if people that are listening want to invest in that, <clears throat> you guys should. They know kind of what some standards are. Yeah. For sure. And I'm happy to, I'll shoot you some links to this stuff after, if you want to include it in the, yeah. the show notes or anything like that. But there's a few critical components. Uh, the headphones are the, you know, from an audio perspective are obviously uh, step number one. These Sennheisers are only like 20 bucks. And I, I happen to work for a founder that is very particular about this stuff. And he's spent years like, uh, just testing different equipment and things like that. So I have the benefit of him saying these are the best, go get those. And so that's simply uh, the reality there. And they're $20, um, huh? I think they're 20 bucks. It's been a few years right since now. I purchased you me, them. You have me fascinated. Oh, they're great. Um, 
and the, the, you know, you can get really expensive in the headphone space. And I, I, I think you have diminishing returns from a quality perspective. Um, on the video side, there's a couple things. One is I, I think most people don't realize the value of a webcam. I think they assume if they've got a laptop with a camera, that's good enough. But webcam, the, the native cameras and, and, um, laptops and computers generally aren't that great. And a webcam can provide a much like higher definition experience for, for video and they're not that expensive. And so I have a Logitech webcam and then I couple that with a, um, a lens filter. So it's actually a filter that is designed to go on your iPhone, but it clips beautifully onto a webcam as well. And so take those two things. You have a webcam, you have a specific lens that goes over the top of it uh, or filter lens. And then this little thing called a loom cube. Um, most of the issues or a lot of the issues with video quality happen to come from lighting because we're in different rooms. The light's different at different times of day. You've got overhead lights, you got lamps, you got whatever. And so the loom cube is just this little box that lights up and it normalizes the shadows and the light on your face, regardless of the light surrounding you. So it, this whole kit, you know, we're talking like a few hundred bucks, but what it does is um, it makes you look professional. I think um, maybe to the larger idea of what you're driving at is, especially in this remote world, we've been remote since the beginning it's a 15 year old company and has been remote from the beginning so this is automatic right yep this is automatic um so this is not new to us but it's obviously new to a whole swath of people that are finding themselves working from home and the best advice i can give is to um uh, to do what stephen press pressfield calls as like turning pro and it's just the idea that like even if you're at home working there's a professional level that is expected. Um, maybe not by your peers or maybe not by all of your peers, but there will be people you interact with who have a, a level of professionalism that's expected. And that's, that is what we're catering to. So this idea of, of turning pro and taking your work even from home seriously, I think is, is um, it can often help set people apart within the workplace. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And for those of you that skip past the intro, and I always warn you guys not to do that because there's so much context. And I know, analytics speaking, 91% of you listen to the entire episode, but there inevitably are people that go past the episode. So aside from Adam being an author and an entrepreneur and him having done work for Men's Journal, Inc., Huffington Post, so on and so forth, Automatic is one of the largest remote workforces in the world. I'm, I'm correct on that, right, Adam? Uh, it is, yeah. Um, I, I think we toggle between being the, the largest um fully distributed organization. I think that changes nowadays because you have a lot of big companies that are actually claiming to go fully distributed for the long haul. Um, so we're, who, know, we're, who knows not, how all that shakes out. But. Yeah, we won't judge it based on whether you're number one or number five. <laughs> but the, the point being, the reason what I want, you know, to really make sure our audience listens to is, you know, one big criticism, I, uh, and, and I mean this constructively with my base audience, which a lot of it was strength coaches and, and performance directors and things like that. You know, it's moving more and more into other fields now. But, you know, a lot of them felt like, hey, you know, we're not treated like professionals, whether that was negotiating different things in their career or being taken for granted. And it was nothing like the pandemic to show 
where those uh, where those gaps lied. Because like you're saying, people were getting on Zoom calls and things like that, and not only would they have bad audio, but their camera angle was off. And I had to learn a lot about this stuff too, right? Like when, when I started doing the podcast, we became a lot more thoughtful about this because it's a whole other world. Um, but, I mean, you would see some things that just lacked common sense. I'm like, guys, there's 100 strength coaches on the call. Five of you have the camera pointed at your chin. Three of you think you're muted and you're having a conversation about politics or, like, I can hear your staff meeting in the background when you're going through a webinar. Be a professional. And and I'm glad that you mentioned press field because it is turning pro. If you want to be treated like a professional, then make sure everything you do, even if you're the smallest even if you're like an intern or you're doing a man at our live events, we have to go to some remote ass locations and we'll still get the step and repeat. And we'll still try to get really nice folders and what have you. It's so much about the conveyance of how much you care about the experience other people have, isn't it? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, we have to take a step back and look at the way we as humans make judgments. And obviously with other humans, whether it's our peers, colleagues, bosses, um, customers, prospects, it doesn't matter. Uh, they're going to make a snap judgment about um, where you sit within the hierarchy of the conversation. And um, if we show up sloppy in our work, that means we we don't take ourselves seriously. And I can assure you, no one else will take you seriously if you don't start with yourself. And so um, it is to your point about, it's not necessarily overly obvious when you start doing, you know, virtual remote work, um, how important this is, but it does have to click at some point that like, Hey, I have to pay even more attention to the way I present myself. And so, you know, we have a lot of internal policies and and just uh, in general around um, how we respect the fact that we are all at home and we do have families and we do have other obligations. So it's not as black and white as take everything so seriously uh, that you're leveling up to your best self. It's, it's, It's a combination of like, look, if your kid walks in the room, pick that kid up and put him on camera and give him a hug because we want to see your kid. We want to say hello and like welcome your family into your work world. Um, but, but the flip side of that is like also an expectation of professionalism beyond the things that are, uh, that are that um, it, it's what, how are we presenting ourselves to the world uh, in combination with let's, let's see this, how we kind of mold these two worlds together because they are, they are um, difficult to separate entirely. They are difficult, but it, it ties in with what we say at Art of Coaching. The, the foundation of leadership is good communication and good communication isn't just the words you say. It's certainly not conveyance. It's how those things come across, how they're transmitted and transmuted. You know, it's the channels and the mediums that you use. It's, it's so much more than words or there, it, it's interesting to me because it's something we've talked a lot about internally, and I'd love to get your take on, you know, a member of our staff had said, you know, do you think communication can be a term that is nebulous for some? Do you think people even know what communication means? Or do you think that they think that it's just, you know, verbal, nonverbal, the traditional stuff? And I said, well, regardless, you know, everything we do or don't do communicates something, right? So that goes hand in hand with what you said. If your kid comes in the room, just pick him up, acknowledge it, show that you're there, show that he's there. But how many times do you see people who are like, Jimmy, 
Jimmy, daddy's talking, <laughs> right? Like, Jimmy, get out. <laughs> it's like, hey, no, it's okay. Like, you can be human. Like, we're not expecting perfect. We're just expecting thoughtful. Is that, would you agree uh, with that line of thinking? Totally. I think that's a great summation of, of the way we approach business. I mean, to your communication point, um, our underlying philosophy, you ask any automatic employee that's been there over the past 15 years, um, our underlying philosophy is communication is oxygen. And um, that is a whole dovetail conversation in and of itself, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. But, um, you know, part of that and how these two tie together is clearly articulating expectations from those surrounding you. So if that's your peers, colleagues, your direct reports, clearly articulating like the level of professionalism that's expected and also how we handle the nuances of remote work and those kids walking in and the reality of um, competing priorities and demands when it comes to working from home. So communication it, without effective communication the whole thing falls apart so I, I do think it's it's foundational to everything that we're talking about well put yeah i i just tell people if listen if, if you don't think communication matters i mean like it's the one thing in life guaranteed like poor communication is the one thing in life guaranteed to make almost any circumstance worse and professionalism is always in the context of what you can do in that time like for example i always make fun of the fact that even now as I'm recording, because we're sleep training our seven-month-old, uh, this started a while ago, I started recording the podcast in our closet, you know, and that's because a couple of things. One, all the clothes around our closet, you know, they they make sure that it's very, you know, noise dampening. You can't hear him thumping, screaming. You can't hear other things going on in the house. Now, I could go downstairs. We could include video, which shows all the glass jerseys and things like that and memorabilia I've gotten over the years and, and stuff from the military. And you could see the book in the background, but okay. At what point is that more about my ego than about the show, right? Where we know that people are listening. What's most important, good sound quality. So what I'm saying here is guys, if you're listening, you don't have to have, and you heard Adam say it too. You don't have to have $400 headphones, a 4k webcam. You don't have to have immaculate studio. I get chastised a lot. Why don't you just buy a studio? I'm like, yeah, okay. Just be thoughtful. And, uh, it, it leads into kind of what I wanted to ask you to have the first official question. You've mentioned the company you're a part of, and you've mentioned how you've been on the founder and the early hire side of startups, really. And right now, there's a lot of folks coming to grips with the fact that they have to pivot in their career. Plan A is not really working anymore. Talk to me a little bit, Adam, about what it's like making that leap to a startup, specifically how you handle doubt and dark thoughts and what ifs and, and all those pieces we don't hear about much. Sure. So um, startups are a particular uh, entity within the wide world of work. Um, they require what I think is a pretty specific personality, um, which is a personality that is very adaptive. Um, it requires a high IQ and a high EQ for specific reasons we can get into. Um, and it oftentimes requires a semblance of humility because startups are incredibly difficult to scale. There's a reason so many businesses fail um, and startups uh, in the technology space, perhaps even more so. I'm not sure if the data actually shows that. But um, so I've been in startups pretty much my entire career. I think my first job in startups was um, 
when I was 24. And I, to be honest, I got really lucky. I was in commercial real estate before that. Uh, and I was finding success in commercial real estate, but I just genuinely disliked the industry. Um, for reasons that we don't need to go into here. But so I made the jump to startups. Um, and what has been obvious over, uh, let's call it 11, 12 years of startup experience now, is that going back to that IQ, EQ comment, um, you need really intelligent people to solve difficult problems at startups. And that doesn't mean you need a literal high IQ that you need to be a genius, but you need to understand topics and be willing to go and understand them at a deep level. Because a startup at its core is trying to disrupt some incumbent technology or some incumbent idea. They're trying to present a different or better way to do something. And you cannot do that unless you have people that are focused on doing intelligent work and bringing their product to market in intelligent ways. And the EQ piece comes in play because startups operate much differently than large companies. There aren't traditional hierarchical structures. Um, There aren't a lot of the kind of unspoken rules that come along with big companies where you kind of navigate and you figure out how to how to operate within those unspoken rules. Startups are really like a handful of people putting their heads together and trying to solve difficult problems. And there is a high degree of emotion uh, involved in that because you don't have the benefit of being detached emotionally from the company itself. You know, if I, you could go join, let's say, Google and be relatively detached from the broader uh, vision of the organization because you're going to go in and you're going to fulfill a specific role. And as long as you're doing that role, fine, that's okay. But in startups, your paycheck, your success, your um, security at home is, is deeply tied to the vision and execution of the broader organization. And so it's impossible to not tie up emotions. And so they're really good places to get um, to get good at handling emotions in a work environment. They're really good places to dive deep into skill sets that you would not have the opportunity to do so at larger companies. Um, and when it comes to like transitioning to this sort of world or kind of understanding it, uh, let's say it's a, it's a world that seems interesting to you and um, you're wondering what, what it's like on the inside. I mean, you, at the end of the day, these are places with normal people trying to do uh, not so normal things. It, it's, it's, it's the ordinary trying to do the extraordinary. Um, and so the, the people on the inside are no different than you or me or anyone that's interested in it. It's just, um, it's embracing the idea that if you, if you jump into this world, there is a pretty steep growth curve to track towards, but the results and what comes out on the other side is really empowering because you see people that are leading incredible organizations at really young ages, mid twenties, low thirties, where you simply would not have that opportunity outside of, um, outside of the landscape of a startup. So you talked a bit about emotions and EQ there and, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's, it's an interesting thing when you're a part of a startup, you know, because you have to navigate not only parts of that business, but parts of yourself, 
that maybe you know you've dealt with in the past. I mean, I know you you know you have an athletic background. I have an athletic background, a very average one. But you know, it's it's no different than sport. It's no different than I know you also obviously enjoy various levels of fitness and you know uh, stress relief for you in your own words is lifting heavy weights, you know, and I followed you, but like, I, I love, I was reading one of your past interviews, but the point being is all these things are that are cathartic are necessary because our emotions come into play at so many different levels throughout our career. Yet there are some that say your emotions shouldn't join your work. You know, we had a, a friend of mine who's a surgeon on an earlier episode and he talked about how, you know, the patients are certainly going to have emotions and you are going to have emotions. He's a trauma doc specifically, but you also have to manage what he called the tyranny of now. Now, on the other end, emotions have to join our work, right? Maybe not so much with, with folks uh, that, that are surgeons because they've got to be able to keep those things at bay, right? If you're performing brain surgery or you see somebody that has, you know, a stab wound victim that they've been stabbed 40 times, right? You can't show this level of empathy on your face because you feeling what that person feels would be panic then, you know, you'd be distraught. But talk to me sure. about a time where emotion, and let's pick one, and you can pick anyone you want, there's a certain emotion that you knew always got the best of you at one point in your life or career, but now you've kind of learned how to flip it and leverage it. And if that's not clear enough, I'll give an example, but I want to give you a chance. No, super clear. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to be giving Steven Pressfield a lot of shout outs here because, because so much of it ties back to that idea of turning pro and this whole conversation about emotions and emotional intelligence the, the idea of turning pro, a big part of it is that you can take emotions that historically would uh, derail you and instead turn them into something productive. So in my own world, I mean, th- th- there's weekly occurrences. I have a really wonderful boss um, and he's wonderful in, in, in many different ways. But one of the ways is he's a relatively demanding boss in the sense that he has very high expectations of me and we have a very candid relationship. And, um, if there is a kind of fundamental philosophy underlying this, it's that idea of candor. And I think where people get tripped up with emotions is where when candid conversations have to have to happen, that is the moment of truth where you answer the question, do you have control of your emotions or not? If my boss comes to me on a weekly basis with critical but accurate feedback about something in the workplace, my job is not to feel that initial onset of ego and the uh, downstream emotions of that ego being wounded. My job isn't to take those and and turn those back on my boss. My job is to take those and turn them into something productive that makes us both happy. It's to go put an action plan in place to turn the situation around. It's to sit there with humility and recognize the situation for what it is and then create a solution to it. And that is the fundamental difference between someone who you would call a rookie and someone who you would call a pro is the ability to translate what is historically difficult emotions into something actionable. And I appreciate that, especially when you said, do you have control of your emotions or not? Because one thing that we've dealt with is, you know, 
a lot of the stuff we're diving into from a communication and social psychology space is it's well researched, but it hasn't been presented in the way that we're kind of shaping it, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that I'm doing in my own doctoral work and with this company that we're trying to build off the great work of others, but create something novel from that. Just like, have you ever read um, uh, The Fountainhead? I have not. Is that Ayn Rand? Ayn Rand, yeah. So there's this part in there, and I'm going to paraphrase it, right? It's very loose from the book. But they talked about the creative capacity, and this. I'll talk to you about how this relates. But they say, you know, you create the wheel. The wheel becomes the cart. The cart becomes this. You know, eventually it's the automobile. Then it becomes the airplane. So there's a lot of people that think creativity is they've got to completely innovate themselves. And that creates some kind of anticipatory anxiety of, well, what if I'm not enough of a subject matter expert? So one thing we've dealt with as a staff is, you know, there's somebody that we have on staff and he listens and he's awesome and he's brilliant, but he constantly feels like I don't have the subject matter expertise that you do in this area. And I always tell him, I say, well, listen, the difference is, is I have to interact with this stuff daily and I want to test my knowledge. So I'll take some research or a concept or an idea, and that will become either a blog post or that'll become a topic on a podcast or it becomes something else. And so then that anxiety is reduced, right? That's the idea of what you're talking about, a rookie and turning pro. Like, are you going to step into the batter's box eventually and swing at faster fastballs and, and all these other things and more skillful pitchers? Or are you just going to feel content, you know, that you're a pretty good hitter in double A and triple A and, and Perhaps it's a bad analogy because people can't always control when they get called up, but it's a good analogy in that when you do get called up, your ass needs to perform. And you mentioned your boss is demanding. Have you ever taken that as a personal affront or disrespect, or do you look at that as somebody's belief in you that you can handle that load? Um, it would be the latter, and it would be with an asterisk, an asterisk that says the that relationship has to be level set up front and what i mean by that is there has to be an expectation of candor in the relationship if there isn't even if you are emotionally sound mature it will still come off uh those candid conversations will still come off in a way that doesn't sit right and so it's to me, it's just a, as much about managing expectations within the relationship itself and making sure that candor is an accepted part of the relationship. And if that's not there, you're going to have those feelings. But if it is there, I think that's kind of the lever that allows you to like turn that into something productive. So it, it starts with framing the relationship and setting the tone up front of for us to grow, for us to succeed as a team, me and you, you know, uh, uh, colleague to colleague, it means we have to be able to have difficult conversations. Are we on the same page about that? And in my example, my boss and I are absolutely on the same page about that. So I know when he's coming with that feedback, it's in pursuit of a better version of myself, the business, doesn't matter. Um, it's in pursuit of something greater. It is not uh, there, there is no subversive message that I'm that I'm reading into beyond the, the tactical uh, nature of it. Yeah, it's, and that's a valid point too. You talking about you know candor and and is that an accepted thing? Where there are so many times today in society, if we do, or if we are just blunt, right? And I know everybody will have different variations of how they define candor or candor on a dimensional scale. But saying, hey, like you know, if if we're blunt or if we do have a tough conversation. 
you know, where's the line between now somebody's going to cry fair play or foul play or, you know, this wasn't they weren't respectful. And it's something we try to say. And but you do find that you have to repeat it sometimes. Right. Like, listen, we can give you feedback. We can't always change how you feel about that feedback. So what you need to determine is, do you really want feedback? There are so many people that say, I want feedback. But really, they just want self-comfort. They just want confirmation bias. They want to be told that they're okay. And, and I think one thing that we've tried to always get away from is we hear that, and I don't know if you remember when this was a thing in like leadership and management, but kind of that criticism sandwich. Well, first tell them something that they do well, then tell them you know something that they need to work on, and then something they can do well. But that's BS. I mean, people sniff that out a mile away, do they not? Oh, 100%. Um... Gosh, I'm drawing a blank on the author's name. Um, I'll think of it, and maybe we can circle back in the show notes. But there, there's a professor, I believe, he's at an Ivy League school, um, and has written a few best-selling books. But he's 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 like a sharp rising phenom in the professor world. He teaches a lot of business courses and stuff. I want to say at Princeton, but that could be wrong. But his kind of very sharp rise came directly from embracing critical feedback from his students. So he started out as a TA and would go deliver information in front of a class. And then he'd send out a survey to all the students and say, basically, like, give me all of the hardest feedback you have. And he's done that with every class for like the past decade. And so fast forward to today, he's in his mid thirties, I think he's pretty young. And that single application of not just like accepting candid feedback, but um, embracing and seeking it out has been arguably the sole career uh, catalyst in his life. Um, and it pains me that I cannot remember his name right now. But uh, if, if you you're recognizing what I'm talking about, what's that? Do you remember the title of the book? No, but I'm going to figure it out while we're chatting and, uh, and we'll circle back you, you on it. You figure out while we're chatting. You know, the, the reason I love this, and this wasn't even a planned discussion, but I'm glad we're getting into it, is, you know, at, at a lot of our workshops, we do uh, improv. And have you ever done improv before I go further so I can interrupt your Google search? I have not. And I, don't worry, I'm not doing uh, Google searches no, no, at the exact moment, I could, but I might be racking my brain. No, I love it. Well, we, <laughs> we, we do improv because that, that's direct feedback. So it's a, it's, a, it's a part of what we look at as like chaos theory or dynamic systems in that we deal with a lot of things that are uncertain in life, right? And the, what, what is more uncertain than the fact that like you're not always going to get back from somebody what you give to them. You know, like you could, you could frame something up a certain way, then you get an attitude or you could make them an offer and you don't get, you know, something back and, and a reciprocal offer. And that's life. Like we get offers every day. The, the pandemic is an offer. We may not like it, but we have to accept it, right? It, it's here for us. And so we do improv because a lot of that was based off the principle of like, yes, and you have to take something, whether that's feedback or emotions or failure, and you've got to make it into something else. But what always drives me crazy is, you know, there, if somebody's like, well, and, and we get like maybe one person at, at an event, they'll be like, how does improv apply to real life? And I say, well, improv is all real life. You get feedback or you get anything and you've got to decide what to make of it. And I think that that's really an issue with where we're at with feedback and why some people don't grow. And I know me at one point I had to embrace this too, is when you don't have openness to experience or you're not willing to take 
you know, a, a real look at the demons you deal with and your ego and your insecurity and all these things, you'll never turn pro because our learning is not experiential anymore. People just read, people will read books and do this and do that and think they got it where improv exposes you. I mean, it's, it's really hard. Um, but I, man, I was hoping that you had I done love that. Well, I mean, think about it. So we're going to play a game here and this is going to set you and I both up to fail. But as you know, failure is opportunity, right? So one of the games we play at these workshops is called Last Letter First. And we'll only play it for a moment, so don't worry. And you'll be really good at this because you're witty. And I have a cold, so, you know. uh, (laughs) Last Letter First is is simply an exercise on listening, right? And if somebody needs to know why listening is important in real life, I got nothing for you. But here's the rules, Adam. And I'll give you an example because it's easier to do that than be verbose. I'm going to say a word. I'm going to say a sentence. So Adam, how are you doing today? What is the last letter that you heard in that sentence or that you know is in that sentence? Why? Why? So you have to start your response to me with a word that begins with why. Go ahead. Uh, yes, Brett, I'm doing great today. How are you doing? Yeah, which we can debate there. I don't know if you'd use yes as an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, I've already but, I've already failed the but, test. But you ended in why? Yikes, man! I've had a really rough day. You know, like uh, my my child's screaming like crazy. I've got a cold, and my wife is also sick. See, uh, your experience is is showing here. Uh, oh, and I'm already okay. ruining the game because yeah, okay. I didn't go the K. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you could say, knowing this, knowing your wife's sick. I'll send her a get well card. Right. But that's the point is like, these things are hard, but at surface level, you know, there's people that are like, Oh, what do improv games have to do with that? Everything. It, it has to do with feedback and growth and exposing yourself, which by the way, man, you're the first, you're the first guest on the show to play a true improv game. So I appreciate the bravery there. I, I flopped over two <laughs> on it, but I appreciate the opportunity to play it. Hey, we'll be right back with the rest of this episode, but I want to tell you guys something that ties in so nicely with Adam's message. You know, oftentimes we all get into situations in life, no matter where you're at in your career, age, experience level, you know, what you've accomplished, so on and so forth, where we need better feedback and we need a community and we need people that can tell us the things that sometimes we don't want to hear, but we need to hear. But we have such a community at Art of Coaching and it's called The Coalition. And we have three levels. It fits every single kind of situation you may want, depending on, hey, I I want to start a new project and I don't know even where to start or I feel like I deal with imposter phenomenon. We have something that for people that are a little further along in their journey and they want to get clear feedback on certain specific areas of their business or a project. And we even have one-on-one mentoring options available. It's all part of our coalition program. And the point is, guys, simply this. We all need more time. And at some level, we all need a community to grow. People that will hold us accountable, but respect us at the same time. That is the coalition. So if you're interested, go to artofcoaching.com forward slash coalition. Artofcoaching.com forward slash coalition. We run these twice a year. We do retreats. We do all kinds of in-depth video calls, breakdowns, individualized mentoring within the group dynamic. And it's something you really just don't want to miss. So check it out, artofcoaching.com forward slash coalition. All right, back to the episode with that. I also want to make sure an important point isn't left out of this whole conversation. Because if you are someone who hears stuff like this um, about the importance of candor, 
there, the importance of feedback. And you know that you do not do well in this area. You know ego gets the best of you, as an example. Um, my only encouragement is that this is a very unnatural thing in general. So like if you, unless you grew up in a family where candor and candid feedback was simply a part of your upbringing, this whole world is not natural. Like it just isn't, especially in U.S. culture. Like we do a lot to make sure we're keeping everyone and the people around us happy and we don't like friction and tension. So um, I think it's important to recognize that this can be unnatural for most of us and that's okay. Like the point of turning pro is not that you should have been wired like this originally. The point is that you make a distinct decision to change your reality. And that's going to be the decision most of us have to make in this world of candor and growing through feedback is that it's unnatural and we have to make that decision to turn it into something natural. Very well put. And I agree. And I think that that's why, you know, again, it it comes so much through exposure. Like you have to take it for what it is. You mentioned at the very beginning that we all make judgments. That's just part of human nature. You can't not judge. And one of my favorite pieces of yours is entitled the guy at the bar. And I bet you didn't think I read this, but uh, (laughs) you know, essentially, you know, the guy at the bar speaks to our bias and ignorance. And this is my words you know, judging others too quickly without realizing what they may be going through. It's, it's fundamental attribution error at its purest, right? We see things that other people are going through and we think that's, you know, them where we very may well do the same things and often do the same things, whatever that is. And we give ourselves a situational excuse and uh, in it, and we'll link it below in the show notes. You guys should all read it. It'll take you less than, you know, five, three minutes to read. You mentioned how you've been the metaphorical guy at the bar plenty of times, right? Cursing others for poor service, casting aspersions on somebody who seems lazy or inattentive, just not giving somebody the benefit of the doubt in general. What led you to wake up and realize that there's always more to somebody's behavior than what we initially perceive? And how has that informed your style of leadership really? Great question. And I think it, um, it will help if I give a quick backstory to that post. Uh, what started out as a post uh, on Huffington Post and then uh, actually evolved into my first book. Um, So if I go back seven years, uh, our firstborn son passed away two days after he was born. And this was after a two-year journey of of trying to to get pregnant. So countless um, surgeries for my wife and pills and IVF and the whole deal. Um, it was a very, very long two years of our life, and it culminated in losing our firstborn son two days after he was born from a um, genetic condition that is not survivable that we didn't know he had until he was born. So that that's the backstory, and nested within that story, um, once we found out that what the condition was that he wasn't going to make it. Um, our family naturally, uh, or our families naturally made their way out to Denver to, to meet Cade before he passed away and to be with us through uh, a obviously trying time. So all these people are coming in town. I'm like, shoot, how are we going to feed all these people? You know, we're at a hospital. Uh, so I go across the street 
to a pizza place and I put in a pizza order and I'm, you know, I'm just going to carry some pizzas back to the hospital room and, and call it good. So I'm sitting there at the bar waiting for the pizzas and, um, I just had this very stark realization looking around that like to everyone else at that bar and it was packed, you know, I'm just a normal guy sitting here waiting for some pizzas unbeknownst to them that my son is literally dying across the street and I'm grabbing these pizzas so I can go feed people and say goodbye to my son. Um, and it was just such a stark realization that it fundamentally altered the way I understood the world around me. Because if I could be in that situation with no one knowing anything about what's going on, how many people in my own life were people in other situations had I um, just passively not given pause and thought to the fact that I have no clue what they're struggling with, whether it's the server, whether it's the, um, the you know, the loud table next to us, what, it doesn't matter. Um, and so that was, that was the situation that led to me just like having to get this piece out of like, you know, we all have to start with a simple fundamental understanding that we have no clue what other people are going through. And I think it's, um, it's a valuable, it's an immensely valuable lesson because it removes a lot of ego bias um, and a number of other things from the situation. Like when, when we can just recognize humanity for humanity's sake, we can, when we can recognize the humans around us for struggling with their own version of the human condition it sets everyone on a level playing field like we don't bring our egos to the table we don't um we recognize that we're all swimming in crap and we're just trying to figure out how to stay above water yeah and uh you know with that and it's hard to you know especially being a dad now with you know bronson and my son being seven months man it's I remember hearing about Cade quite a while, you know, ago. And uh, because, you know, one thing we haven't told the audience yet is, you know, that you and I went to school together. And uh, I admit, I omitted that from the intro at the beginning because we always try to, you know, just unveil more and more through the episode. But, you know, Adam and I were in a fraternity together and, you know, followed him on social media for a while. But, you know, I go to bed at night a lot now as a new dad thinking about, oh, what if this happened to Bronson and what if that happened and, you know, what if that happened? And, you know, we talk about things that are common, like feedback and struggle and transparency or what have you. But man, with Cade, I mean, not only was it uncommon, you know, if I remember like an article you had written said you had only 40 reported cases in of that condition in history. So you were, yeah. in the, like one in a million, if not billion and you had to, it's, it's hard. I, I can't imagine how that doesn't color the rest of how you, you know, being that guy at the bar in perpetuity. I mean, it's something that makes you far better than I am because I know, I know that my emotion that sometimes I can flip for good is, is anger. Like when I get mad, I actually get more focused, oddly enough, but I would just feel so many things, man. And, um, it just, to me, it makes you the authority on that subject because there, that's something that no degree no amount of research or anything will ever teach you other than the experience that, that you guys had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I appreciate you saying, saying that I I think if there is an unspoken truth to experiencing something like that, it's, um, 
it is that comparing losses, comparing pains is a fruitless effort. And what I mean by that is you can imagine how many times over the past seven years um, I've had people tell me, you know, uh, you know, I lost this person, but it, you know, it doesn't, it pales in comparison to what you've been through or things along those lines. And what you realize is that actually it's not entirely true. Like loss is loss. Pain is pain. Difficult situations are difficult situations. There really is no weight to them or like hierarchy or ranking of them because I still look at people in their situations and I'm like, oh my gosh, I couldn't imagine sure. what that is like. But it's it's so individual. You know, some someone's loss of their dog can be just as painful as, you know, our loss of Kate. And I think if there's something I'm really grateful for walking away from that situation with, it is recognizing that, that like we all experience our own losses and our own pain in our own ways. But they all hold equal value. Like they're all moments of disruption in our life that we either uh, hopefully learn from and grow from. Yeah, without question, you know, and uh, if you don't mind, can I ask you, and and you can totally pass on this question, um, but I think it's, there's insight here that I want to share regardless of the response that, that might help some folks. After that experience, did, did you and Emily seek out, you know, did you talk to anybody? Did you, did you talk to a therapist? You know, what was that and the reason I ask is so many people experience grief on many different levels, you know, and like, I'm glad you brought up the dog thing. You know, we lost two of our rescues within like five months of one another, both under the age of six. And, you know, 2020 has just been a tough year for a lot of folks. Right. But like, I think a lot of people look at, you know, they don't know how to talk about these things. Did, did you guys just keep it internal? Did you talk to somebody? Yeah. Um, so we, we never sought counseling um, in, or therapy. Um, and I, I want to provide a big uh, just note there that those things are, can be phenomenal. Um, and so I'm not saying uh, don't look to those as avenues. That's just not the route we took. Sure. Um, w- with us, um, I'll start with a quick story. When I... Uh, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I've been off for years, but back then I was on Facebook. And when I first posted that Cade had passed away, you know, cause we had a, you know, a large social group and, um, it was the best way to get that news out as horrible as it is. One of the comments to that post was, um, it was a lady. I didn't know her. She was, you know, connected somehow to me. And she commented that something along the lines of like, you know, good luck over 50% of marriages that um, where they lose a kid result in divorce or something along those lines. I actually think the percentage was was much higher than that. So regardless of the fact that that's like a completely inappropriate comment, um, in a lot of ways, I'm super grateful for it because it put me on guard for the risk of the situation like I could have sat and sulked in the situation which there was plenty of but the value of recognizing that there are other things at play and at risk here was really really helpful because I could 
process the situation while also keeping an eye to the bigger picture of like this can't have ripple effects where it tears down other parts of my life so th th that's a story to to anchor on how we worked our way through it um, was actually in very different ways and i can only talk about this stuff in a retrospective fashion because i don't know that i would have put these pieces together in the midst of it but at the time writing almost immediately became my outlet um writing writing to me is one of the most valuable things any of us can do because at, we're, the way let's take the common forms of communication written uh and spoken um and actually i'll add a third in there which is just our consistent stream of thoughts in our head. These are all kind of different ways we're communicating with ourselves or with others. Um, they all operate in fundamentally different ways. So speaking is very much about being articulate, distilling something down to its essence and communicating that in a way that lands with other people, right? Our thoughts are a big jumble and it's a lot about sifting through those thoughts and trying to make sense of them. And writing is this third outlet that allows you to process that kind of mess going on in your head in a way that I don't think you can accomplish outside of a, a pen and a piece of paper or a computer and a, and a cursor. Um, and so writing writing for me was that outlet. It's how I processed everything going around me. And, and for all intents and purposes, it was therapy for me. My wife took a much different approach. Um, she, she did write some, and I do think it was really helpful for her, but what she found her outlet in is um, being there for others going through difficult situations. And so she got really involved in the lost community. And so, you know, I can remember a few months after Kate died, having dinner at a couple's house who lost twins at birth and, <laughs> trying to help them make sense of it, or at a minimum, just having people being there that at least understand to some degree what they're going through. Um, and so she really leaned into being a vehicle for other people. Um, and I leaned into also being a vehicle for other people, but through my writing. And so this is where the retrospective comes into play is like in the middle of that, I don't know that I would have recognized that, but looking back, what I recognize is we both found ways to turn a terrible situation into something with at least a silver lining. And I think that is like the only takeaway I can, I can say for tragedy is that if we're not doing the work to find the silver linings and, and use them for good, we are doing ourselves a disservice as much as we're doing others a disservice. Like I, I do think we we take on a responsibility when we go through something difficult to turn that into something useful for other people. It helps us process it, but more importantly, it just creates ripples that um, you know finality in difficult situations does not have to be finality overall. We can take that and we can translate it into something useful and helpful for the world around us. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that with such great detail because that is something we get asked a lot in our podcast community on Facebook. It's one of the only reasons I'm on Facebook is from the business end, you know, we use it to obviously let people know about courses and clinics or what have you. Otherwise, I wouldn't have it because of 
folks like the one that you mentioned, but we get asked a lot about, you know, how, how do you deal with tough times? How do you deal with this? And I think the, the easy answer is, you know, some, some of the things that we go to constantly, well, you know, just talk to somebody, do this. And those things can be great. I agree with you. I think talking to a therapist and counselor can be phenomenal. But I also think that you have to, and we've said it before on this show, make kind of your mess, your message. And, and more importantly, sometimes the message is the medium. And you mentioned writing, you know, before this, you and I have talked about, and there's some dissonance with me where I will write when I feel like there's really something that, that I've got to put out into the world in mass. Otherwise I don't like writing. You know, for me, I, I like conversations and being able to get stuff out in a context-rich way. But with you, how you internalize the lessons, how you internalize those feelings, and how through an unconventional road, it led you to creating impactful, uh, insightful things that people can read and relate to, and it inspires them in their own way. And, you, I mean, you write your way out, you know, kind of to, to do those things. And you can put pen to the page how do you keep yourself from overthinking? I mean, is it something that's always just come naturally to you? Are you able to let those things spill? Because a lot of times when people start writing, they feel the need to, you know, almost write like somebody else. What's been your go-to strategy for keeping things so clear, so consistent, so that even when these emotions join your work, you're able to get to that strong narrative at the end, but in a relatable way? Yeah. I mean, um, it's a great question. And I think my answer somewhat ties back to an earlier part of the conversation. Um, are you familiar with Austin Cleon and his book, Steal Like an Artist? I'm not. Phenomenal book. Um, and, and the gist of it is that like, we have this idea about the arts and so we can bucket lots of things into the arts, writing, speaking, um, literal art, like painting, it doesn't matter. Um, and I think, we have this idea that like these are creative originals, right? These are people that just have genius creative minds and they, you know, put out these works of art. But like the reality of creativity is that we're taking other people's creative work. Um, we're processing them in our own way and we're kind of evolving them into our own message that is specific to our experience and our reality. And so writing is that for me. Um, I think I've never met a writer who isn't also a uh, substantial reader. Um, And I'm no different. Um, I read on average about a book a week. And uh, I don't, I don't do that because I think I need more knowledge. I think I could stop today and have the knowledge I need to lead the life I want to live. But I do it because our brains are incredibly good at connecting dots if we give them the space to do so. And so what reading does is it provides us with more dots, with more nodes, and it allows our brains to do the, <clears throat> the subconscious work of connecting them. So reading and writing are deeply connected to me. Um, and the idea of writing as an outlet for me and how, how to come to like articulate consistent pieces is really just, um, it's, it's getting really good at that kind of symbiotic relationship between reading and writing, learning and acting, absorbing and doing and distilling that into, into my own unique voice. Um, I think it is easy early on in writing to, go 
mimic someone else like you know uh ryan holiday would be a good an easy example of like someone's who who's writing i so deeply appreciate that i could see myself falling in the trap of trying to be ryan holiday the second um but the when you take ryan or when i take ryan holiday's writing and then i combine it with my own experiences and i distill that into the medium of writing which is my kind of uh, way of processing all of that what comes out is not ryan holiday it comes out as perhaps ideas rooted in ryan holiday whose ideas are rooted in stoicism um whose ideas are re- likely rooted in philosophies that are pre-Stoicism. And we, we turn that into our own thing. So it's a long-winded way of saying writing is not so much a creative act as it is a learning act combined with your own experience and seeing what comes out. Yeah, well, I mean, you're saying it's, it's not a creative act. It's a transformative one. And that's why, you know, it harkens back. And you, I thought you did a really well, uh, good job of, of phrasing that. But it goes back to what I was trying to say about how I was influenced by the fountainhead, right? Like you can't give people the creative process. Meaning like people can't digest things through a collective stomach. You know, they, they still got to be able to do something. What you can do is you get the exchange of raw material, right? An idea from something, but you've got to create it. I mean, I re- I remember even when I wrote conscious coaching, there were people coming up to me being like, well, I could have written that book. You know, it's like, what, what, why would you even say that? You know, but a lot of times it was, I got a lot of heat cause I was 30 when I wrote the book and you know, you're 30, you should have written a book. I, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I was just like, all right, well, I mean, you have the capacity to write the book, like go write a book of your own now. Like you don't have to do that. And so it is interesting when people will try to make those things about, you know, you can get inspired by a lot of different things. What you transform it to says a lot about you. If I'm understanding kind of what you're saying there. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example of people telling you that. Um, I I mean, my, my gut reaction to that is to just chuckle because you and I and anyone who is used to doing um, and not just dreaming, uh, we, we recognize that the gap between that person saying that and you as the person doing it is so enormous and if they don't and if they don't recognize that gap there's nothing that you can say in response that will help them see it no and and the excuses are always hilarious right people always want to assume that you have some kind of free time i'm like really like you know i i own my own business my wife's a part of that we have a seven month old we're in a pandemic i'm trying to get my doctorate life's a shit show for everybody right? You just like, you figure it out, you know? And, and some of these people that said it had, you know, high profile jobs where they don't even have to worry about their, you know, their own meals. They can eat it at the team facility. They have all these kinds of things. Their, their trips and travel are paid for. So yeah, I mean, everybody's got to deal with these own kind of internal and external personal crises in their own way. Listen, we, I have like 20 more questions for you, but we got five more minutes. So we're putting you one, I'm answering the question that's going to make you blush. And then you're going right into the hot spots. Are you okay shifting gears here as we, as we get to the end and we've got to do a part two without a doubt. That sounds fantastic across the board. And before I forget to circle back <laughs> to it, the author and professor is Adam Grant. Adam Grant, um, there you go. Originals. Yeah. Wrote originals, number of other books. Uh, and he, he's the youngest tenured professor ever at the Wharton school at uh, Penn. Um, he, he was he was tenured at 28, which uh, is is 
pretty remarkable. And, and his work is impressive to dive into if you're someone that struggles with the idea of using candid feedback as a mechanism for growth in your own life. And he's somebody that we need to get on the podcast because I, I owe him some credit. He took a phone call from me one time and didn't need to. I was at an event in Las Vegas, and um, I, I remember I'd reached out to him on some medium. I don't remember which one it was. And uh, I, I just asked him some questions because it had to deal with what I was just mentioning with the writing. And I had asked him, you mentioned how he's the youngest tenured in, in that space. I had said, hey, you know, at the time I was 30 years old, I get a lot of guff in my industry uh, from some people that, you know, just feel like you shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that. How did you deal with that? And he took an hour of his day and he responded to four or five of my questions. I asked him how he approaches his presentations because, you know, I was doing more and more speaking at that time and was just a really, you know, to the point, clear cut, very, very helpful guy. So um, phenomenal human. And we got to get him on the podcast if I can ever get him to reach out because I think he's blown up even more now. So he's probably like, I'm not coming on. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it speaks to it speaks to a high degree of character on on his part. For sure. All right. So <laughs> leaders have to wear a lot of masks and play a lot of different roles. Now, in college, you did this well. Anytime we had some sort of date party or Greek life function. Now, I know I'm going to get a lot of guff from people are like, what? You're in a fraternity? Right. But anytime we had some kind of date party and we had a lot at them, you know, uh, and you always picked out very creative, unique <laughs> costumes. And if I remember the place in Manhattan, Kansas correctly, it was called grand. Was it grand old trunk or grandmother's old trunk? Where was that so, <laughs> horror show that we got these things? I had to stay on mute through that. So I'm not just laughing through, uh, <laughs> through your monologue there. It, so I believe it was the technical name was grand old trunk, but we called it grandma's trunk. And I don't know why, uh, but if my memory serves me cor correctly, that is where many hours were spent uh, among us. <laughs> so to give the audience context, you know, we'd have these last minute kind of last minute date dashes and it could be everything from, uh, you know, old men and gold diggers and some other ones that we're just not going to talk about on the show, but they were always just really random things, right? You kind of flip it. Well, the point is, is in leadership and in life, we all have to wear a lot of masks as well. People might not like to use that phrasing, but you do, you know, you don't always act the same around every group. You may with your morals and your principles, but not in the way that you communicate it. As a matter of fact, it would be irresponsible for you to talk to everybody the same way. But Adam, getting back to the costume and not the deep part of leadership, what was one of the more cr creative, and I'll put that in quotes, costumes you remember from one of these date dashes? And what does it say about your leadership style? Oh, God. Brett, what are you doing to me? Uh, so, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll bring up a photo that uh, is, is one of the, maybe one of the leading reasons I'm not on Facebook anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have found if, it. I would have put it on the show notes. If if I recall correctly, I don't remember if this is a date party, but the costume is the most important part here. Um, Bob Huggins, former Kansas State basketball head coach, left us for West Virginia, which was tragic because he was the greatest thing to happen to K-State basketball in decades. <laughs> and he left us on a very high note. Um when he announced he was leaving, someone, and I genuinely don't don't know who. Uh, I know where this is going. <laughs> decided to go take his parking sign from the basketball facilities. And so 
I don't remember the night uh, or the details of the night holy or why we were dressed up or what the background situation was, but my attire consisted of a, a cowboy hat, a black Stetson, if I recall correctly, and the Bob Huggins sign as, uh, as my choice of underwear, I guess you could say. And, and that was the extent of it. And so that picture, you know, that was really pre social media days. I think it was in its early days of Facebook possibly, but maybe not even that. Um, so these were back in the days when you didn't really realize what a picture meant uh, to, to the future. And so that picture eventually made its way onto Facebook, which I promptly had to uh, figure out how to uh, divest myself of. So that, that's probably the most memorable yeah. on my, my book. And what I think that says about your leadership style, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I'm formal, but I like to party. I think it means that you're creative and loyalty is important, you know, so... So there you go. But I mean, you think back about a lot of these things. And I remember at some point, even for one of these date parties, we had hot tubs shipped in and we had like seven or eight hot tubs on a basketball. I don't even know how we got some of these things done. And that needs to be another episode. But I'm just sitting here thinking like, you know, you'll need staff sometimes and you're like, hey, guys, can we get the newsletter out? Well, I don't know. That's I'm like, guys, I don't want to hear it. We had hot tubs shopped shipped in from a fraternity party for 24 hours. We can figure this out. Um all right. Never, never mind the fact that I was the respective figurehead of said organization and uh, resident c- contributing just as much to said debauchery. Yeah, I mean, but it was great, balanced man. Um, all right, hot spot questions. Right, um, I know that you and many others are fans of various ideals espoused in Stoicism. Right, you've brought up Ryan Holiday already, and obviously the way her work he's done with Daily Stoic. So I'm going to test you here we do a game that's all about the duality or gray area of things, right? And we kind of call it devil's advocate. We haven't really landed on a name, to be honest, because there's so many different things. Um, But here's how it works. I give you a quote, and you have to tell me both why you agree with it, but then you also have to tell me why it's wrong. And there's no excuses. You can't be like, well, no, I, I don't disagree with anything. You have to campaign for and against it, all right? Now, to make it even harder on you, The quote is by Marcus Aurelius, right? So uh, here it is, and I'll repeat it. If it is not right, do not do it. If it is not true, do not say it. One more time. If it is not right, do not do it. If it is not true, do not say it. Now, you need to make a case for it and against it, starting with whichever one you want. Okay. Before I jump in, I'm just letting you know I'm going to steal this exercise. This is a fantastic thought exercise that should probably be a part of all of our work. Please Um, do. So I agree with it um, at surface level. Uh, Knowing Marcus Aurelius and knowing Stoic philosophy, uh, the bulk of what they're talking about is morality in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think he's driving at the fact that you speak and do things from a moral compass standpoint. And I think that is largely true. So I'm going to agree with him for 99% of situations. And I think where this uh, exercise is really helpful is understanding the 1%. Um, and the 1% of situations where I'm going to disagree is there is very obviously situations in which 
telling the truth does more harm than good. And I'm trying to come up with one on the spot. Um, but let's say like your, uh, your child, let's say your, um, I'll give an example from my life. Our, our cat ran away July 5th of last summer. Um, and you know, we have little kids. So let's say like we had figured out that our cat was eaten by a coyote down the street. Viciously, like like just viciously. Right, right. So the 1% of that Marcus Aurelius quote where I'm going to push back is in situations where like telling the truth of the situation does more harm to like, in this example, my kids than it would do any good just for the sake of being noble and telling the truth. Great example. Greg, man, we need to get you to one of these improv workshops. You would crush it. Um, yes, I, I love that. All right. Three things about COVID-19 that have been a blessing. Oh, gosh. Great question. Uh, and I could, there's more than three. Yeah. Um, you got two more questions coming after this. So don't feel like you've got to allow the audience knows that this is hot spot. So you don't, and you don't need to justify yourself. So my three things would be, I have loved spending time at home. I'm becoming more of a homebody and spending time with family has been fantastic. Um, Second thing would be, I live in Colorado. We've gotten some fantastic time in the mountains and it, it, the mountains just blend really nicely with our current uh, reality because you can get away, you can be apart from people, but still enjoy life. Um, And then a third is like, what better moment is there to take a reflective approach to what is important in your life? And I'll leave it at that. Beautiful. I love it. Um, A time where you sent an email or text to the wrong person by accident and your heart just went right into your chest. Oh, gosh. What a great question. It's the worst. my, (laughs) My My initial reaction is actually going to be somebody else's story that I used to work That's with. That's fine. Uh, so I used to work with a guy, still friends with him. He's a, a wonderful human. And he accidentally replied all to a company-wide email. Uh, That's always with, how it starts. And he had just started too. I mean, he's on like week two at the company. With a joke, uh, I won't remember or go into the details because it's not necessary, but we'll just say the word anal was involved in this whole dialogue that he replied all to a company and was immediately pulled into the CEO's office to talk about it. Oh. And uh, it, it's something we still have laughs about today. It's one of those things that all have all have bad dreams. And I own Art of Coaching, right? But like even more rests on that, but I still worry about that, especially when you're forwarding email or you're replying and you're like, wait a minute, did I hit reply all? Did I, you know, cause you can get on autopilot sometimes, no matter how present you are or what have you. We totally. Wake, I wake The up. best thing you can do is never put yourself in that situation in the first place. There you go. Uh, all right. The two, two left. I think I said two a while ago. It doesn't matter. You're, you're giving good ones here. Your favorite villain in any movie. Oh gosh, uh, we're, big the, we're big on the dark side here. You know, like people yeah. always talk about heroes and inspirations, but you know, we feel like so the, the anti-heroes. Uh, go ahead. These these are heroes and villains, so I'm not going to entirely answer your question. But um, I'm I'm assuming you've seen Boondock Saints, of course. So the lead characters in that are two of the greatest lead characters ever and they are probably equal parts villain and equal parts hero but the villain side of them i think is what makes that those characters work yeah the anti-hero 
You know, I love it. Yeah. All right. And then this one's going to be tough on the spot, and I get it. So if you, if you can't do it, I, I have one to pivot to. The cheesiest, and I mean, like, one of the worst, and I don't mean worse as in, like, inappropriate, but just, like, the cheesiest joke you know. Or one of them. Okay. Uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow. Moo! <laughs> yes. I don't think I could ask for any more. I mean, you knocked out more hotspot questions than anybody else on our show. And we kind of, br- we take it out, bring it in. You know, we kind of do it, but it's been backed by popular demand. So, you know, well done. If I knew which thing on my soundboard was the actual applause, I'd do it. But I'd be, here, I'll guess here. Let's see. There it is. There's the, <laughs> that's there's, fantastic. There's the applause. Adam, I am proud to say that's a joke my kids have uh, gladly adopted as well as they should listen man you've been more than gracious with your time i'm eight minutes over with the time and so uh where can people go and we'll of course have this all in the show notes we'll spell it out for everybody we'll link it but how can people support you your work your mission and everything that you're doing yeah this is this is where um this is where I, I will not be a great guest because my web presence these days is pretty limited. I'm actually off of all social, uh, which is maybe we'll get to that in round two. Um, but the best place to find me is these days is I write daily, uh, a daily newsletter called the Vitruvian Project. And it's just at Vitruvian, V-I-T-R-U-V-I-A-N project.co. And it's a daily email where we just talk about um, something mindset related uh we give a quick workout uh that people can do at home and then an excerpt from one of the top personal development books in the world uh, and we rotate those on a weekly basis so that's where i'm at on a daily basis that email comes from me and i engage with readers on a daily basis through that so sign up if if you're so encouraged if not feel free to reach out over email it's just adam at adamgriff.in I love it. And I'm still waiting for the guests to make. We had one guest that mistakenly gave his, gave his phone number out. And I learned this lesson the hard way when I first started like speaking every day. But he gave his phone number out and he, he texted me. He was like, I should have never done that. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for somebody to give their address out and be like, I'm off all social. But you can find me in the woods. And, you know, just put this into your GPS. Well, listen, man, I, I deeply appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully it was uh, both an enjoyable and somewhat traumatic experience for you. Uh, <laughs> reminiscing Super on some fun. of these things. And uh, I just can't appreciate you, tell you how much I appreciate you enough. Yeah, well, Brett, I, uh, I, I would be remiss to not just take a second to carve out space for you and just tell you how much I appreciate you and how much I've enjoyed Um, just growing together in our careers over the years and and keeping in touch. And it's been such a pleasure and so much fun watching uh, who you continue to evolve into. And I just deeply appreciate the work you put out into the world. So thank you for what you do and carving out an hour of my time to to hang with you is the best excuse for for work I can think of. Thanks, man. And I owe you some blog posts too. Don't think I've forgotten. We'll, We'll get to those guys. Until next time, this has been the Art of Coaching Podcast. Brett Bartholomew and Adam Griffin signing off. We'll talk to you soon.